0: Just a quick note before we begin. This episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. So if you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. Anthony Aralata didn't spend much time worrying.
1: I'm not one of those types to worry about things. I'm not that type of person.
0: And after Frankie Roach was arrested for shooting Al Bruno, Aralata still wasn't worried.
1: I'm thinking, well, I never dealt with him at all. I never called him on the phone. I think I met him three times my whole life. But maybe Aralata should
0: have been a little worried. Frankie Roach flipped, and he told investigators that Freddie G has paid him $10,000 to shoot the Springfield mob boss. So now Freddie gets arrested and charged with the Bruno murder. Now are you worried? Now it's a step closer to you.
1: No. Why not? My mindset was I didn't focus on... On that, I just, you know, every day wake up and hope for the best. And the outcome is going to be what the outcome is. But Freddy
0: Gius' arrest made other people worried, like John Bologna. He's the guy with the big beard who tried to extort the Mardi Gras strip club. But more importantly, Bologna was the right-hand man of Artie Nigro, the boss of the Genovese crime family in New York. Freddy Gius knew some things that could put Bologna in hot water. Like the plot to kill Frank D'Adabo, the union guy who got shot nine times and lived. If Freddy G.S. flipped, it could mean big trouble for everyone involved. So Bologna set up a meeting with Aralama.
1: He comes in and, you know, he does his bullshit with the hug and the kisses. Then right away, Bologna said he was worried Freddy G.S.
0: might talk.
1: And I remember I get up, I whisper in his ear, uh, I'm not talking about none of that stuff.
0: Why'd you whisper in his ear?
1: Because I always assumed people had wires on, but just so this moron would know that I'm not talking about it, I just told him in his ear, I'm not talking about none of that stuff. But Bologna didn't stop.
0: He kept asking questions that Aralada didn't want to answer. So Aralada's caution became full-on suspicion. And he replied extra carefully.
1: Freddie's innocent. Frankie had a beef with Bruno, and the kid killed Bruno. I go, Freddie's innocent. He's going to beat the case. Freddie's innocent.
0: Aralotta repeated that line for the rest of the meeting. Then, a few weeks later, Aralata got a call from someone who knew John Bologna.
1: He says, tell him the guy with the beard went into the witness protection program. I go, what? He repeats it. And it didn't hit me at first, but then I'm like, it was John Bologna oh, this guy, he cooperated. And he goes, yeah, he went into the uh, program. The feds came and got him. They packed him up in uh, black SUVs and they took him away. This guy knows about a few things I did that could get me locked up a long time. Right then and there, I was like, boom. It was like my the, the world was over.
0: Now, Anthony Aralata was worried. Aralata had good reason to be concerned. His past crimes could put him in prison for the rest of his life. Soon, he'd have a decision to make. Take a chance with the jury and fight the charges in court? Or betray his mafia family, cut a deal with the government, and help us go up against the mob? From CAFE... And the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Season Two The Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig. Episode Four They're Gonna Want Bodies.
3: That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
0: As a former organized crime prosecutor, let me tell you, the value of a cooperating witness lies in how many bigger fish they help us catch and how far up the mafia's chain of command they enable us to go. By all measures, Frankie Roach was a valuable cooperating witness. He got prosecutors to Freddie Gius. He told them Aralotta was involved. But something else, Roach said, made investigators think the murder conspiracy went all the way to the top. Roach said that the order to shoot Al Bruno came from someone in New York. Roach didn't know who, but for Brian Warren, this Springfield FBI agent, it was enough to make his next move, call the FBI's New York office. There's a whole
4: Genovese crime squad of the FBI in New York, and there was pretty much an understanding that... When you start hitting made members of the Genovese Prime family, obviously we'd be looking for their assistance.
0: Warren wanted to know about one particular New York mobster, John Bologna. Warren knew that Bologna spent many weekends in Springfield before Al Bruno's murder. So he thought Bologna might have been involved. The New York FBI told Warren they also had an eye on Bologna and were in the process of building a case against him for racketeering and extortion. This is when my office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, got involved. Think of it this way. The FBI are the cops for federal crimes, and the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecutes those crimes, just like on law and order, but on the federal side. Now we're thinking, we could add murder to Bologna's list of crimes and get him to flip. So an agent set up a meeting with Bologna, and we laid out all the evidence we had against him. And just like that, John Bologna agreed to cooperate. He flipped in one week. That was easy. Maybe a bit too easy. Most cooperators I've dealt with need well more than a week. It took Frankie Roach three years. Something was up. And soon we found out what. John
4: Bologna ended up being an informant for the Newark, New Jersey division for over 20
0: years. You know, unbeknownst to us. That's right. The whole time Bologna was visiting Springfield and trying to commandeer Al Bruno's rackets, he was an FBI informant. But the Newark FBI didn't tell anyone in New York.
4: Basically, Newark Division had an informant that lived and was reporting on New York City mobsters. Some people in New York would argue that that informant should be turned over to the New York Division.
0: According to Warren, division rivalry between the two FBI offices may have been one reason the New York FBI was kept in the dark. But it's hard to know for sure. My producers reached out to the Newark FBI field office for comment, but they declined. What I do know is that the communication gap did us no favors. It allowed Bologna to play both sides.
2: For years, he'd been feeding information to the FBI. Not about what he did, but basically about what his enemies were doing.
0: That's Mark Lanford. Back then, he was an assistant U.S. attorney, and I was his supervisor. Lanfer was not a fan of John Bologna.
2: Totally untrustworthy, total schemer. I mean, John Bologna was just a total schlub.
0: Lanfer says that when Bologna was just an informant, he used the FBI for his own ends. But now, as a cooperating witness, he couldn't just feed us bits of information in hopes that we'd go after his enemies— Being a cooperating witness means he'd have to tell us everything and be willing to testify at trial. But John Bologna didn't fully appreciate this.
2: He thought he was cleverer than everyone else and that flipping would be a way to sort of skate by.
0: When Lanfer asked questions, Bologna didn't always tell him everything. Just enough to keep prosecutors at bay. But still, pieces of the truth eventually emerged, and we found out who gave that order to kill Al Bruno.
2: So, John Bologna was the one who told us the order came from Artie Nagro. What does John Bologna tell you all about Anthony Aralata? That he had been the one to really put Artie Nagro's instruction to murder Al Bruno into effect.
0: And so, in 2010, nearly seven years after Bruno was killed, the prosecution finally had enough evidence to indict Aralata for that murder but just barely enough.
2: When we charged Anthony Aralada, it was on pretty thin evidence, really.
0: One to ten on the SDNY scale of how confident you are in those charges, as is.
2: Confidence in terms of guilt, I would say ten. Provability. Provability, three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why the difference? John Bologna. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, the case was very reliant on John Bologna, who was a very untrustworthy witness. You know, it was worrying, it was unsavory, but that was what we had.
0: When Arlotta learned Bologna had flipped, he knew it was only a matter of time before he was indicted. So he was living each day to the fullest. And the day before his arrest was especially full.
1: It was just, you know, uh, a great day before. You know, as far as women went, my kids, eating... You know, I had a good-looking wife. I had a good-looking girlfriend. I was with them both that day. I was with my kids. I remember going to bed at night with, you know, after being with one girl and another girl, and then I'm home, and I got my little daughters, on my, both of them on my chest, laying on my chest with me, and you couldn't ask for a perfect setting.
0: But the next day was a little less perfect. That morning, the authorities showed up at Aralada's house to arrest him.
1: It wasn't like crashing the door in and yelling and screaming and with guns out. It was nothing like that. It was just knock-knock and, hey, I'm here. You're under arrest. All right. You know, that's it.
0: The cops handcuffed Aralata and drove him to the courthouse jail, where he waited for arraignment. While waiting,
1: Aralata took a nap. I wake up and it's like that first second of waking up and you're on a metal bed and you're like, ho, ho, and you're thinking the day before I was just with beautiful woman, my kids, eating good. And here I am waking up on a metal bed and probably never going to be with a woman ever again, you know, or see my kids like that ever again. Then finally, it was time for Aralada's arraignment. I go in front of the judge and, uh, you know, I have my family there, friends, and the judge asked the prosecutor, what am I facing what's the, the maximum sentence? And they said, death by lethal injection. And I was like, whoa. And Did that scare you? It didn't scare me. It was like, reality was like, whoa. This guy just said they, they want to kill me, you know? The judge
0: read aloud the list of crimes charged in Aralata's indictment. And Aralata noticed something was missing.
1: I was confused about, you know, once this guy Bologna went in, why I wasn't indicted for more crimes. Which ones specifically surprised you that, that weren't in the indictment? Well, the shoot-in of the union guy. Shooting the union
0: guy, Frank D'Adabo. John Bologna knew about that crime.
1: John was involved with that from A to Z, you know, planning it and showing me where, you know, he was a part of the conspiracy there. So I was just, why wasn't I indicted for that?
0: What did you think had happened? Did, you, did it go through your head?
1: Yeah, I really couldn't figure out what
0: happened. I mean, he'd left it out. There was one more thing in the indictment that caught Aralata's attention. He wasn't charged in his home state of Massachusetts. We charged him in the Southern District of New York. I may be a little biased, but the Southern District is the most formidable prosecutor's office in the country. And as Mark Lanfer will tell you, we have a bit of a reputation. Can you just give us broad strokes about the SDNY and why people within the Justice Department sort of see the SDNY as maybe a wee bit territorial, arrogant, whatever?
2: Well, they see it that way because it is that way. (laughs) I mean, look, the SDNY has a great history, phenomenal history of success by being aggressive, always true to the law, but aggressive in charging and successful in charging. The nickname is the Sovereign District of New York. The office likes to think it doesn't take instruction from anybody. It does the right thing. It pursues justice without fear or favor.
0: We take on the biggest, most complex criminal cases. Everything from terrorism to insider trading. And, of course, organized crime.
1: I knew all about the Southern District, that they had a 99% win ratio. They don't lose cases. Anthony Aralada knew the odds were against
0: him. And the next time Aralada's lawyer visited him in prison, Aralata told him how he felt.
1: I go, listen, this is what the situation I'm facing. I said, "Uh, you know, I'm never going to get out of here. So he's looking at me and he's like, do you want to make a preemptive strike? A preemptive strike, meaning
0: cooperate with the government.
1: He was saying things like, uh, you know, you got a hard decision. It's a decision you got to think about. Nobody's going to love your kids more than you do. No one's going to take care of your kids and your family more than you will. And he goes, it's not an easy decision, you know, living the life you lived, but uh, that's the decision that you got to think about. And this was like going in my head back and forth, you know, can I do that? One minute I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't do that. But then I'm thinking, well, wait a second. It's like, if I don't do that, I'm never going to see my kids again. I'm never gonna have freedom again. And I thought about it. That was the first time I said, yeah. I go, that's what I'm thinking I wanna do. So he got up and whispered in my ear. He said, they're gonna want bodies. I said, okay, well, I I know about bodies.
3: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. Seven
0: years before we indicted Anthony Aralata, he was in an empty apartment building in the Bronx taking the oath of Omerta. They pricked his finger, placed a few droplets of his blood onto a tissue, and lit it on fire.
1: If I ever betray this, I'll be killed. If I ever speak about this moment again, my soul will burn like this tissue. And now, in
0: 2010, Aralotta was thinking about doing just that, violating that oath and cooperating with the Southern District of New York. His soul wasn't burning, but it was torn in two.
1: Weird feeling. I mean, there's times where you want to, you know, do you wish you were dead, and then there's times you were like, "Fuck this!" You're happy. You're gonna, I'm gonna move to Florida when I get out and start a new life. Fuck that. But then there's times you wish you fucking had a gun so you could put a bullet in it, your head. So it's like mix. It goes back and forth. You know.
0: When the day came for Aralata's first proffer session, he was still on the fence. Mark Lanfer says they scheduled the meeting in Manhattan in the U.S. Attorney's Office wing of the federal courthouse.
2: We were in a conference room, in a table and chairs, nothing fancy at all, very dated, probably stained carpet, windows you can't really see out of, you know, not a fancy, not a happy room. Along
0: with Mark Lanfer, Brian Warren, the FBI agent, Thomas Murphy, the Massachusetts state police officer, and two other FBI agents were in the room. When Aralata arrived, the U.S. Marshal sat him in a chair and took off his handcuffs. Then Lanfer explained to Aralada how cooperation agreements work.
2: The deal is, look, if you want to cooperate, the only way to do it is to tell us everything. No lies, 100% the truth. You've got to tell us everything about the charge crimes and everything about what we have in charge. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, uh,
1: am I really going to do this and this and that? And I asked him, I go, can you give me some time at that
0: point, everyone walked out of the room and left Aralata alone with his lawyer. Aralata wanted reassurance that he was doing the right thing. So he took the phone and made a few calls. First, he called
1: his wife. And she was still saying, I want you to do it.
0: Next, he called his girlfriend.
1: I called up my girl. My girl says, wherever you go, I'm going to come with you. And whatever happens, she was by my side 100%.
0: And then Aralata made one more phone call.
1: So then I actually called up some guys that owe me money. Because, you know, when I did get locked up, the money right away, this fucking weasel bastard, the money stopped coming in. So then I'm calling up them. I go, where the fuck is the money? At that point, Mark Lanford came back into the conference room. And then Mark actually told me, he says, hey, you know, the money, you can't be collecting money no more. <laughs>
0: But despite the reassurance from his wife and his girlfriend, Aralata still wasn't ready to
1: commit. I told my lord, I don't think, I don't know if I can do this.
0: Everyone in the room was on the edge of their seats. If Aralata flipped, the case was about to get a whole lot stronger. If he didn't, we were stuck with using John Bologna as our star witness.
1: This was, like, really intense. The tension in the room, I mean, you could cut it with a knife.
0: Then finally... Mark Lanford was tired of waiting. Mark
1: asked me, so what are you going to do?
0: And then Aralata thought about why he was in that predicament in the first place. Not about the crimes he committed, but about the person who spilled the beans,
1: John Bologna. I wanted to abuse him because I hated him. So I said, you know, I know you got your uh, prized informant, you guys all love him, and, you know, but, but that piece of shit is the reason why All this shit happened in our area. I'm just, I'm not, you know, I know that's your guy. I'm not bad-mouthing him. I go, I just want you to know he's a treacherous scumbag lowlife. But forget about that. I know he's your guy. I'm not saying anything like that. But if he's your guy and you guys, you know, love him so much and all
2: this, how come I'm not indicted for uh, shooting the union guy? I remember being in that room and I remember Anthony saying, now, you know, there's another shooting. I don't know why I'm not charged with this. And we're thinking, well, we'll tell you why you're not charged for that because we don't know about it. We don't know about any other shooting.
0: But Lanford didn't say
2: that out loud. And we played it cool in the room, you know, didn't let up that we didn't know anything about it.
1: And Mark looked at me and he said, "Uh, well, tell us about it. And that's how it started. That's when I pulled the trigger and I said, there's no turning back.
0: By admitting to a crime the feds didn't already know about, Aralada had crossed the Rubicon. There was no going back. He told us everything. How Artie Nigro, the Genovese boss, asked him to kill Frank Dadabo, the union guy. How his friends, Freddie and Ty Gius, agreed to help. How they shot Dadabo nine times while he was getting into his car. How Bologna informed him their victims survived. And finally... Aralada repeated Artie Nigro's career advice, get better at headshots.
2: All of us just looked at each other like, this case is blowing up because it's a lot of detail and we've got them.
0: Aralada got his revenge on John Bologna. Because Bologna never told prosecutors about the Dadabo hit, he violated his cooperation agreement. Eventually, we tore up his deal and charged him for the attempted murder.
2: And so I had to get him formally pled out. And then, you know, after we charged the others on on his information, we put him in jail. And he never got out again.
0: John Bologna died in prison in 2017. He was 75. Back in the proffer session... Mark Lanford wasn't finished asking of questions. He still wanted to know why Al Bruno was murdered. It was clear that Artie Nigro and his right-hand man, John Bologna, wanted to take over Bruno's rackets. So they needed Bruno out of the way. But why kill him?
1: The most we've ever seen was a guy get taken down, you know, broken as, as you say, and they demote him. So him getting killed was never a thought. It was never talked about. It was never mentioned. A demotion.
0: That was all Nigro and Bologna were planning. But eventually, Nigro saw a document that changed his mind. The document's origin story began in 2002, almost two years before Al Bruno was murdered. Bruno had a long history of cozying up to local politicians, and that day he was at a fundraiser for a Springfield City Councilman when an FBI agent walked in. Brian Warren worked with this agent in the FBI's Springfield office. Al Bruno, his personality
4: was engaging. So throughout the years, he on occasion would speak with agents and, you
0: know, small talk. The FBI agent struck up a conversation with Bruno, and they chatted for nearly an hour. At one point, Bruno mentioned another made member of the Springfield crew named Emilio Fusco. Al
4: Bruno made reference that he was upset that Milio Fusco was made while he was in prison.
0: According to the FBI agent, Bruno told him, they shouldn't have done this while I was away. Fusco is a hothead. He's too young and needs to learn how to respect people. After the fundraiser, the FBI agent typed up a report of their conversation and added it to the FBI's records. But that report didn't stay in a filing cabinet for long. Fast forward to 2003. Emilio Fusco found himself in some legal trouble.
4: We had a very good case put together with the Mass Day Police on Emilio Fusco for RICO and
0: gambling and extortion. Fusco was found guilty. And like in all criminal cases, before sentencing, the judge received a pre-sentencing report that laid out all the factors that should be considered when deciding Fusco's prison sentence. In
4: the pre-sentence report, There was literally one sentence in there in in which it states that an FBI agent would testify. Al Bruno confirmed that Fusco had been made, end quote.
0: The thing about pre-sentencing reports is they're not confidential. The defendant gets to read them. And when Fusco read what Al Bruno had told the FBI, Fusco was furious. So he called up
1: Aralata. What I remember is Emilio Fusco telling me he needs to see me right away. It's very important. He was all rattled and
0: angry. Later on, Aralata met up with Fusco at a Friendly's restaurant.
1: Fusco handed the report to Aralata. He shows me the paper, and I was like, wow, that's not good. He made a bad move by talking to the FBI agent.
0: Next, they showed the document to John Bologna.
1: John was in his glory. This paper, it was like... A beautiful gift that he just received, you know, before it was just break them and take them down. But now John was going to look to get Bruno killed and Artie was going to have no choice.
0: So Bologna told Artie Nigro about the document and Nigro decided to act. He called a meeting of the Genovese crime family's governing council and the three members met at a restaurant. They passed around the document, read it for themselves and discussed what they should do. In the mob world, there is no greater sin than speaking to law enforcement. It's a violation of the oath of Omerta. So the council decided that Al Bruno had to go.
1: So Artie calls me down, I meet with him, and basically what he was telling me is, get my guys and my crew to kill, you know, help them plan it, help them set it up or whatever, but don't get your hands dirty, don't get involved directly.
0: Do you talk to him about which guys of yours should help? Is there any understanding who that's going to be?
1: I think he made reference, you know, use the brothers. When Aralata arrived back in Springfield,
0: he told Freddie and Ty Gius their new orders. Turns out, Freddie Gius knew the perfect guy for the job. Someone he became friends with during his last stay in state prison.
1: That's how Frankie Roach ended up getting involved. So Freddie considered him like a crash dummy. What does that mean? You know, put him to go do something crazy. Let him do it.
0: So one night, Freddie Gius met Roach in the Basketball Hall of Fame parking lot and offered him $10,000 to kill Al Bruno. Roach agreed. The investigators in the proffer room had spent nearly seven years trying to figure out why Al Bruno was murdered. Now, they finally had their answer. And for Mark Lanfer, Aralata's candid confessions meant something even bigger.
2: Was that a relief for you to hear from Anthony? It was a huge relief to me. Our evidence just got way better. I effectively knew my case no longer hinges on John Bologna.
0: Mark Lanford began that first session with Anthony Aralata, hoping to find evidence to convict Artie Nigro of Al Bruno's murder. But by the end, Lanford had a shot at convicting Nigro of one more felony, the attempted murder of Frank D'Adabo. That meant one more chance to take down the boss of the Genovese crime family. But the feds weren't finished with Aralata. They wanted to know about another murder, too. In November 2003... About three weeks before Al Bruno was shot, a police informant in Springfield disappeared. Officer Thomas Murphy remembers when he found out. The tip came from an anonymous caller.
4: And the caller just goes, Gary Westerman's missing, here's who did it. Errol and the two GSs, click, hangs up the phone.
0: the next up against the mob.
3: What's going on over there now? There's all kinds of digging going on around this city and looking for something that they suspect the amp was involved.
4: We look on the ground and we start finding
2: bullet casings <laughs> in the yard. it's like, you gotta be kidding me. Alright, we found bullet shells. We see some cardboard. We see a sneaker. We've got a leg. <laughs>
0: For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive Cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. Up Against the Mob is a production of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lisa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow in your listening app. You can also write a review and let us know what you thought of the show. Thanks for listening.